On this episode of Five Things, we'll take a look at the workflow for a web series, this web series in fact, and examine pre-production, production, post-production, post -production, distribution, and what I look forward to improving. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Five Things, a web series dedicated to answering the five burning tech questions you have about technologies and workflows in the media creation space, plus tech stuff I dig and how it's used. I'm your host, Michael Thomas, and today we're pulling back the curtain and examining the workflow for the Five Things web series. There's more going on here than you think. Five Things sprang from my love of technology but also the realization that the proliferation of creative tools had clouded the understanding of much of the underlying reasons for that technology. I also knew that was a niche concept in a niche market, so I'd have to go it alone. So much of the workflow behind five things comes from me. First, it starts with coming up with an idea, something that not only interests me, but's also a hot topic in the industry. Wow. Michael, look at this. You think folks will be interested in hearing about the speed differences between network mount points? No. I also consult with Moviola, who has sponsored this series this season, and also premieres the episode as a webinar once a month. Moviola wants to ensure that the episode topic is relevant to their viewers, so that gives me some framework to ensure the episode is applicable. The one webinar a month paradigm also gives me a time frame to plan production and post-production by. It's then brainstorming time, writing out the five major questions of the video, along with ideas for B-roll for each question and point. I have a Word doc template that I then begin to populate with the ideas in a narrative and conversational fashion. I then simply start dragging my knuckles across the keyboard and grunts approvingly as the episode starts to take shape. This is what will become my script and teleprompter feed. Because much of what I talk about is reliant on exact speeds and feeds, it's important that my tech info be as correct as possible, so I traditionally don't ad-lib the episode as much as I'd like. It's also at this point that I'll call some industry friends, other creatives and technologists, and sometimes manufacturers, to discuss some of my viewpoints to ensure the info I'm pontificating on is accurate. Lastly, it's time for the cutaways. Being raised on media, quite often my normal thought process recalls clips from movies and TV shows, and many of the cutaways are simply a natural extension of my cognitive process. I can't help it, it's how I'm wired. I can't help thinking that in a way, we are plugged into them. But we control these machines, they don't control us. Of course not, how could they? Put all of this in a blender, and I get six to 10 pages of tech goodness. Now it's time to shoot. I shoot five things at my home office, a modest 13 by 13 room that allows me to do five things on nights and weekends. However, a room of this size does present some challenges. First, let's start with the look. Given the shortness of the room, having multiple cameras set up would be tricky. So I decided to shoot with a 4K camera and release in HD. This allows me to have a medium shot and a close-up from one camera. This also means my lighting requirements are reduced, as I don't need to take into account lighting for other angles. I wanted a shallow lens for a little bit of bokeh. A traditional video lens would have most everything in focus, and the frame would be very busy. 
the Sigma 1.8 18 to 35 was a great choice. It's also a fast lens, so I don't need a ton of hot lights in a small space. So I needed a camera that could shoot 4K and have removable lenses and wouldn't break the bank. I chose a Blackmagic Design production camera 4K. Next was the teleprompter. Given the small size of the camera and the less than constant use, I chose a modest prompter, the flex line from Prompter People. Easy to set up and lightweight, so I didn't need a heavy duty tripod. It's also adjustable and had a large enough monitor that I could plug my laptop into it and run the prompter. Prompter People has the FlipQ software to run the teleprompter. Prompter People also has a sister lighting company called Flowlight. The lights are very inexpensive, but not the most rugged. An A220 with some diffusion and situated directly behind the camera lights my face just fine. It's not as artistic as I'd like, but the room constraints somewhat limit my options. Speaking of lights, I also have a 1500 lumen LED light behind me. A simple clip-on light to an old boom stand. This not only gives me a hair light, but also the white ceiling becomes a great faux bounce card to illuminate the room. Now, because I am a one-man production band, I need to see the shot while I'm in front of the camera. I use the camera's HDSDI out to an HDMI converter and run that HDMI to a 27-inch monitor. This allows me to check framing, lighting, and that the camera is actually recording. As for sound, I use a Sennheiser wireless lavalier mic transmitter and receiver and run the signal directly into the camera. As I do cut sound for indie projects on occasion, I do have some sound dampening up around the room. Sadly, it's not enough. And if you listen to the audio version of this episode or with headphones, you can still hear a slight reverb in the room. Lastly, I gotta put on my face, and that includes makeup. I have an oily T-zone. I then shoot, and the footage records directly to an SSD in camera. I record in ProRes 422HQ at UHD resolution at 2398. I like the film look 2398 gives, coupled with a short depth of field with the lens. Plus, most of the episode is a talking head, so there isn't a need for a higher frame rate. As a fringe benefit, the media files take up less space and it's easier to stream for viewers. As for dynamic range, I shoot in a video look as opposed to film to reduce the amount of time in post spent on color. Ah yes, the warm bosom of post-production. It's home, you know? During this portion, feel free to follow along with a flowchart at 5thingsseries.com. As soon as I'm done shooting, I take the raw camera SSDs and mirror the footage to a second SSD for backup. Once mirrored, I take a Premiere Pro template I've created for the 5 Things series and ingest the UHD ProRes footage into the project. Given the newer proxy workflow in Premiere Pro, I no longer need to manually create proxies and relink during the offline. Premiere does it for me. I flip the files to ProRes LT at UHD, maintaining the 2398 frame rate. I'm often asked why I don't offline in a smaller codec or at a smaller frame size. And the answer is pretty simple. I don't need to. The amount of footage is small enough that I don't need to save a ton of space. And I like the UHD resolution so I know how much I can safely punch in for my HD deliverable. It also gives me the media format I'll ultimately archive to. What? Yeah, I wrestled with this decision for a while, but let's be honest here, this is a web series. There's little reason I need to have uber high-res masters of the raw footage after the episode is complete. My final output will be from the camera masters, and the need to go back to the originals are slim and none. Plus, archive storage constraints are always a concern. 
I would not recommend this for most folks, especially broadcast professionals, but for me, I was willing to live for the quality trade-off for archival material. By now, the proxies are created, and I transfer them to a several-year-old and soon-to-be-retired Synology 1512 Plus 20TB NAS. This offers me a backup of the media and redundancy in the event a drive fails. I also keep the raw media on the SSDs until the product is done. I also put the proxies on a portable bus-powered SSD, a 500GB glyph, which allows me to edit anywhere easily. My main edit system until recently was a 2013 MacBook Pro. It had a G4750M GPU and 16 gigs of RAM. However, starting with this episode, I'm using the new 2017 MacBook Pro with a CalDigit USB-C dock. I'd run the HDMI out to a consumer 42-inch UHD monitor, which I used a Spider Pro to calibrate the color on. I can now begin to select my takes and assemble my cut. I mark my good takes in Premiere and do a string out. Once my talking heads are strung out, I go into After Effects and I generate the questions before each segment, as well as the lower third factoids. I attempted to work with the live text option from After Effects to Premiere, but too often I found that I needed to adjust the parameters of the text that live text just didn't give me access to. So I do the questions in lower thirds in After Effects and export them with an alpha channel, then use them in my Premiere sequence. I also use light leaks from Rampant Design as transitions between segments. Next, I track down the film and TV cutaways I need and rewrap them with a QuickTime wrapper or flip them to a more edit-friendly format. This is also the stage where I'll incorporate footage or effects from other NLEs. I'll use Telstream ScreenFlow for screen recordings. ScreenFlow allows me to zoom into screen recordings without much loss in quality, so I can point out features or details in whatever I've recorded. I'll also use Red Giant Sapphire plugins for the dirty video effects. Sapphire plugins are very intensive, so having all of the media in a more edit-friendly format makes previewing the effects that much easier. Of course, during this time, I'm backing up all of my media to their respective data parking lots. Once the rough cut is done, I render the sequence and export a ProRes file using the rendered previews. Why? Using previews allows me to go back into the sequence and make changes to fix mistakes without having to re-render the entire sequence during export. After the render, I'll export the sequence in Adobe Media Encoder, same as source, and upload it to YouTube. Why? Rendering to a 264 takes up a lot of CPU resources, and I want to continue working. Same as source is a quick export, 264 is not. YouTube will take ProRes files no problem. The upload will just take longer, but in the background. I then share this unlisted link with my friends at Moviola for their input, as well as Thomas, the motion graphics dynamo at Moviola, so he knows the timing for his motion graphics. Thomas will do three to five motion graphics per episode if needed to add a little bit more eye candy than just my overactive hand movements. My mom, my dad, look at my hand! Color is not one of my strong suits. Because of this, I'll often enlist the help of Jason Bodash at Synetic Studios to do a corrective grade on my talking heads. I shoot him over a few DPXs of my talking head, and he rescues me from the daredevil red hue that comes from this room. I use several isotope tools for any audio cleanup I may need to do, and to EQ and compress my audio for ease of listening. It's now time for the conform, and the proxy workflow in Premiere makes this very easy. I simply toggle from low res to high res, and just as before, I'm ready to render. I take the rendered sequence and export the cut from Adobe Media Encoder using previews, and I now have my master file. 
This is where things get really hairy and where I spend a huge chunk of time, and I would kill to automate this. You can follow along with a flowchart at 5thingsseries.com. I currently have five distribution points for five things. Moviola, YouTube, my website, Roku, and iTunes. Moviola is relatively simple. I generate an H.264 using a slightly tweaked Adobe Media Encoder YouTube 1080p preset. Moviola has a proprietary VOD platform, so the best I can do is give them a high-quality file delivered via the web that they can work with. Moviola handles all of the metadata for their system. YouTube, as I mentioned earlier, gets a ProRes file. While this lengthy upload happens, I start to work on the thumbnail artwork, which will become the basis for every distribution platform. I'll also begin to enter in metadata on YouTube and do some research on what kinds of keywords are working for similar videos. Now, I'm a huge proponent of education and being accessible to as many people as possible. Tell the truth. Reach as many people as you can with it. That's your weapon. To this end, I ensure five things gets captioned. It also reportedly helps with SEO, although to what extent Google hasn't really told anyone. I have a workflow hack below that I'll link to that gets YouTube to take your script and time it to your video free. This becomes your captions. After YouTube times the captions, I download the SRT caption file as I'll be using it for all subsequent encodes. I then take the transcript of the episode and use it as the basis for a blog post at 5thingsseries.com. This allows a visitor to read the information in the event they don't want to watch or listen, as well as, again, being good for SEO. As the video is already on YouTube, I simply embed the video at the top of the blog post so viewers can watch on my site or on YouTube. Now, Roku is a difficult beast. As Roku is rather finicky about channels linking to YouTube videos, I need to go through the lengthy process of creating streamable media for my Roku channel. I chose to go with Apple HLS for the streaming media format for Roku, as it's the most flexible and forgiving on various platforms. This generates segments of each episode in varying degrees of quality, so the end user's player can auto-magically switch between resolutions depending on their available bandwidth. Generating this media format, plus the M3U8 manifest file, is something that not a lot of encoders do easily. I settled on Sorensen Squeeze, because it creates the media and generates the M3U8 playlist file. However, there is a slight gamma shift, which means I need to do some small tweaks to the color on the encode. This is obviously not ideal. Tests with earlier versions of Compressor 4 yielded several errors. So when time permits, I intend to experiment with newer versions of Compressor to streamline the process and to potentially move off of Sorensen to Compressor. While the encode is happening, I take the master ProRes file and run it through a little program on an aging PC called BIF Video File Creator. A BIF file, or base index frame, is a file that Roku uses to show thumbnails of frames as you rewind and fast forward through the episode. It's a little eye candy that makes scanning through an episode easier for the viewer. For graphics, I take the thumbnail that I created for YouTube and resize it to fit the graphic requirements for my standard definition and high definition Roku channel. My Roku channel pulls all of its data from external resources via XML. This makes it easier to update and easier to use a third-party media host like Amazon's S3. Thus, I need to hard code the episode metadata into the XMLs, as well as then link to the media, caption files, and thumbnails of the episode. I then upload all of these files to my Amazon S3 bucket. 
It's then QA time, and I load the channel up on both my Roku 3 and Roku 1 to ensure HD and SD look and play in an acceptable manner, and that the thumbnails, captioning, and BIF files perform as expected. Next, it's iTunes, which is a new addition for five things. In fact, it may still be under development when this episode premieres. I have five things as two podcasts. One, the video as you watch it now, and another that is just the audio portion of the episode, as I've had requests from folks who want to listen on car rides or during other activities where watching simply isn't possible. I use Compressor to generate the 720p.264 files for the video portion, as well as the MP3 version for the audio podcast. I use a great app called Subler to insert the SRT caption file into the 720p podcast file, as well as insert the plethora of metadata into the file. Blueberry has a fantastic WordPress plugin that maps metadata from your blog post directly to iTunes. This allows me to upload my iTunes media to Blueberry and have one place for the metadata to pull from for both podcasts. So at least that portion is somewhat automated. There is always room for improvement, and so there are several things I'd like to change. Add a whole new wing on here. I'm going to rip these walls out and, uh, of course, rewire it. Yeah, you're going to make it all 220? Yeah, 220, 221, whatever it takes. One is more dynamic lighting, rather than just a boring and somewhat evenly lit and occasionally blown out face. I'd also love even more motion graphics to illustrate the tech talk that I'm making on camera. Less of me and more of the things I'm talking about, without a basic slideshow or a Ken Burns effect over a still image. Automation for distribution is a biggie. The various platforms all requiring specific media formats and metadata. Most online distribution platforms that connect to these VOD outlets are really not meant for an indie person such as myself, so a third-party service really isn't in the cards for now. Lastly, I wanna work with you. Wanna be a part of five things? Hit me up. Episode suggestions, comments, or offers of collaboration are always welcomed. Have more workflow questions on the web series? Maybe some improvements? Ask me in the comments section. Also, please subscribe and share this tech goodness with the rest of your techie friends. Be sure to check out the rest of this series and all of the other great learning content at Movila.com. Until the next episode, learn more, do more. Thanks for watching.